0: and welcome to Globalise Asia. Support for this podcast comes from Royal Beans Chocolates. Royal Beans is based out of Bangalore, India and specialises in Belgian chocolates infused with exciting flavours like masala chai, cappuccino, berry blast, walnut marble and many more. You can gift these special crafted chocolates to your loved ones in India by visiting their website www.royalbeans.in Use the promotional code GLA one zero to get ten percent discount off your order. Thank you.
1: Right, Sarah. Welcome to Globalization. So I understand you are on a Europe European trip, trip, so to speak. You've been in Portugal recently. Now in London. Um, I'll read a little bit about yourself on um, on on mighty Google. And I understand you uh, you're a woman with a cause. You know, you're from Lahore. You've um, I won't keep too much away, as in where, where you've been raised around the world, but um, you are an executive director and founder of um, JPP, as they call it for short, the Justice Project Pakistan. Tell us a bit more about JPP.
0: Um, so, I mean, JPP is in its 10th year. It was... Uh, we started I, actually like, around December 1st, 2009. Um, and uh, it was started out of my dad's storage closet in his office. Actually, that was our first office. Um, And it was uh, myself and another lawyer named Maryam Haak. And um, we started because we wanted to do something different and um, uh, we wanted to represent prisoners um, in prison. And even out of those, we wanted to represent the ones basically that no one else wanted to represent, um, the ones facing the harshest punishments. And uh, we believed that it that, that A, they deserved representation, and B, that they deserved good representation. Um, and we wanted to do it differently. So that's how it started. Um, and now, uh, mashallah, 10 years later, it's uh, we're a team of 24 people in a couple of cities. But our main office is in Lahore. Um, and... We are lawyers and investigators, um, as well as a communications team and a policy advocacy team.
1: And is that something you, so let me take a step back. Obviously, we we probably didn't do justice to introduce yourself. So let me take, you know, understand a bit more about you. So you are a lawyer Mm -hmm. by by profession and um, you studied law in UK Mm -hmm. and you've gone back to Lahore Mm -hmm. uh, straight after. Or you practice in UK?
0: I didn't. I did my bar here, and then I went straight back. Bar is? And the, sorry, I did the. I passed the bar here, right? right? So right. the bar vocational course, I think they call right, it. Here.
1: Okay. So um, what, and is your father into the similar profession?
0: No, there's never been a lawyer in both right. sides of my family ever. Okay. Um, which is, my parents are pretty bemused. Right. Actually, bemused is saying it kindly. I think they were not happy about me saying that I wanted go to law school. They're business people, and business people usually hate lawyers, Um, so. Unless they are. They were very disappointed when I said I wanted to do law.
1: So so tell us a bit more about these prisoners that you're talking about. How did you come about uh, starting an organization purely because you felt so strongly about certain, you know, uh, aspect of um, the society where you feel there's been an injustice done to them? Or has has there been cases that you've come through?
0: Yeah, actually, it happened in law school. So, I mean, I went to law school quite late by British standards because here you can go as an undergrad in college. But because I went to university in the U.S., sorry, college in the U.S., law is a postgraduate degree there. Um, And I actually had no plans or even ideas to become a lawyer at all. Um, But then... After college, I found myself working for my father in Pakistan, and uh, I just I was not into um, anything corporate at all. And at the same time, I was living in Pakistan after being away for like a decade, um, and I found it to be very disturbing um, to live there. um, You know, just in in with a lot of blessed with a lot of privilege. But you just see so much injustice and inequality like all day, every day. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me that was like really hard to deal with. Um, So, you know, there was like the flight or flee kind of reaction. And I had a really good, uh, but obviously I can't, like, I could not do anything. Um, So my parents said either figure out if you want to go back to school and do a professional degree, or uh, tough luck, like keep working. Right. Um, So, I had a really, one of my best friends from high school um, actually had just finished law school. And uh, I was speaking to him and he said, you know, you should go to law school. I was like, what? Like, what? what, why would I? Like, I don't know anybody who's a lawyer. I've never thought about it. And he's like, no, we were in high school together. I know how your brain works. You will love it. So just go to law school. And I was um, pretty desperate to kind of get out of Pakistan. And I was trying to figure out, like, what on earth was I supposed to do in life um, if I can't do like a normal job? And so I thought, okay, um, it sounds interesting, like I, I can't be a doctor, I'm, I can't stand the sight of blood and I can't be an engineer, I'm not good enough at math. Um, so what other professional degree could you do? Um, so I was good at studying, so I thought I'd go to law school. But the goal was never, ever, ever, ever to do like corporate law or anything close to that. Um, and while I was in law school here, uh, even though law school was thoroughly uninspiring for people who don't want to be corporate lawyers, because I think they're kind of machines that are built mm. to, to create core or at least the law school that I went to. Um, and then there was this really famous British lawyer that came and spoke at my law school. And he was a human rights lawyer. His name was Clive Stafford Smith. Um, and he was doing a university tour speaking, and he had, he defends people on death row in America, and he had uh, two, one of the clients that he had gotten off of death row, which was a young black man, must have been in his 20s, and his mother, um, and they came and they spoke, and it was just, it's I, it just never left me. I mean, I, I like broke down crying and lost, you know, in that auditorium full of hundreds of, law students, and I didn't break down crying because of just like the power of that of their story and the injustice, but I just broke down crying because I couldn't, you know, this was a kind, this is what I wanted to do with the law, but I hadn't come across anybody in law school that was vaguely even like that, or even talked about, you know, that entire side of the law. Um, so yeah, when I moved back to Pakistan, I was like, okay, I'm going to do criminal law because that's what I want to do, and... I was interested in like prisons and prisoners and the injustice of it all. But then, you know, I, 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 have, I had a great first boss. He um, was a very famous, is a very famous criminal lawyer, he practices at the high court, uh, brilliant brain. I was the first woman that he ever let, uh, you know, hired as an intern. Um, and he really took a chance on me, but um, I really wanted to do trial work. You know, that's where the, the the real struggle was Um, and you know the high court work was nice and it was like more prestigious and stuff but I I really wanted to do trial work and I wanted to learn it from the bottom up Um, so then I um, I tried but there weren't enough lawyers that were willing to kind of take me on or you know uh, the environment wasn't conducive I'm even at this place I remember like you know even though my boss was amazing and nice You know, they had no place for a woman's bathroom, so I had to use his bathroom All the other, there's no place for me to sit. The other guys were not too happy about me being there, and it was just, you know, um, but then there were people that were really nice and really helpful as well. So I had to take the files home and kind of study on my own and try to figure out what it was. Um, So then eventually I went to, I worked for four months then in a civil firm because I wanted to learn some constitutional work. and then I got some of the best piece of advice I've ever gotten, which was stop trying to look work for other people, just do it yourself. And I thought, oh, does that is that a nice way of telling me that I can't be hired or like like I'm not worth being employed? I'm terrible at what I do. Um, and uh, but then I started. Just I was like, okay, forget it. Like I'm just gonna do it myself. I'm gonna figure it out as I go along. Um, and it was amazing. I went to my first. I found my first case in a newspaper. This death row prisoner was going to be executed in a week, and he had just written into the paper asking for help. Um, and I answered, and I had no idea what I was doing. And I just learned on the on the fly. And it was, I think the universe has a way of, there was a lot of luck involved. There's a lot of providence involved. From, because from the minute I took on the case, and I had no idea what to do, um, People just started coming into my life to teach me from far, far away. Um, And then a year later, enough of doing that kind of work, I did like two trials, I won. Um, Then I was like, wow, you know. Um, Then I got more work and then my husband kicked me out of our house and said, you can't, well, no, he didn't kick me out of my house. He just (laughs) said, you cannot have your office in the house because it's taking over you know, our apartment and so, then my I moved from the home office to Dad's storage closet, um, and then that's how JPP started.
1: Um. That's amazing, but what what was about that story that resonated with you in terms of why did you believe that story or did you? I mean, I'm just trying to understand somebody um, because obviously, you know, any judicial system in any country, you would like to believe that everything goes as per the rule or law. You might you know you I never are. believe that no but that do, is do
0: people really believe that? I, I do people do <coughs> believe that and I find that so if you
1: don't have an experience of that then probably you have no option but to
0: believe but I didn't have any experience of it but at and least I you, just you never studied, believed you, it
1: you were more closer than people like man on the street
0: no as in like before so like let's say in Oxford when I was in law school first year when Clive came to speak at our college um, i had never like been in a courtroom or at yeah, least nobody seen a likes courtroom it,
1: yeah but I'm saying if you are if you are one of the readers who would read about a prisoner who was on the death row, you the first I don't know uh, perception would be that he must have done yeah. something really bad to deserve that. Unless, yeah. unless you are very close to that prisoner, and you know the story or you know what. Yeah, what maybe happened.
0: I'm just messed up that way. I just I just never kind of felt that way about anybody. Right. So you,
1: you, you thought straight away that's the wrong thing to do? No. People should not get killed? Yeah, I mean, Is that's, that what? yeah. Right. I just, irrespective I just, of whatever the, they've done.
0: And the thought of prisons. Wrong. I mean, just the very notion and the concept of prisons and how they kind of take people's humanity away. So I don't deny that people who are in prison have done possibly really horrible things. But I just don't think you treat human beings that way. What? And I also don't think that... Well, because you know we're more than our just just one bad thing that we've done. we've all mm. done in our own ways some really hurtful, awful things yeah um, and then also so much of how your life plays out is just what you were born into mm. you know and 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 what like kind of opportunities you have based on what you were born into, so mm. you know you think about somebody. Who's born, um, you know, whose mom was, let's say, comes from a disadvantaged background, uh, then you know, there's bad maternal health at that time, and your, your kind of fate uh, is already written while you're in the womb, right? right. If you're, if your your mother didn't have enough resources to take care of herself, or didn't know enough to take yeah. care of herself. You know, you're more likely to be born like as with stunted Mm. uh, faculties, and that determines to a huge part like you'll have learning disabilities, you'll have medical issues, you'll have, you know, that that really writes your path unless
1: the state and the system
0: steps in to take care of you. So, I don't, Mm. I, I guess you're right. I mean, I just, I never, I never, ever, ever. But if you exactly.
1: talk about, yeah, I understand we, you're talking about the psychology of an individual before a crime happens and what, how, as a society what responsibility or as a judicial system, what responsibility we have against, you know, towards that individual. Understand completely, but I'm trying to understand you know, if if I'm reading a newspaper and if I, if I hear a plea from, if I'm a lawyer and if I hear a plea from someone on a death yes, I probably would be curious enough to understand what has happened he might mm-hmm. I might go and have a meeting with him and understand but at what point you realize this is it I want to help him was it while reading or actually when you went to meet him
0: no actually it was so, so these are like a yeah. Bollywood
1: kind of a plot you know yeah of-
0: no it's um so so there's like a prelude to it right so I had just gotten done with my second stint at a law firm Right at the constitutional law firm, and then, uh, then I volunteered at this uh, nonprofit for a while that did right. like pri- family law and stuff. Um, but then the, the 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 partner who had set up that nonprofit um, basically advised me like you're meant to do something on your own, and I was like oh my god like does this mean, you know? And he said no. Uh, I was actually he wasn't running the nonprofit, but. Someone else was energy. who didn't like me. No, no, no. Not at all. It was a small trust. And, um, so I was kind of really depressed and I was sitting at home and just bumming around and my parents and my husband staged an intervention because they just said, you know, like we've spent too much money on your education and you don't get to just sit around and not do anything. So get up and get a job and, um. You know, so my husband was put in charge of kicking me out of bed at like seven am. And I had to um, so I was this was literally, I think, the second day. And I figured out that I could, like, you know, get a little bit more time at the breakfast table uh, if I pretended to read the newspaper. So I read the newspaper, and then I read the second one, and then the third one, and I'd literally read it page to page. And so I was like, all right, fine. I'll just read the letters to the editor, right? Because my husband was kind of walking around being like, is she just looking for a job or is she just being a bum again? And that's when I read that letter. Right. And I didn't, like, pick up the phone immediately. I was just really disturbed at the thought of um, somebody, you know, who has two daughters. His wife died of cancer. I mean, it was a really well-written letter, I have to say. Right. Um, and, uh, you know... And I just thought, oh, my God, like, what would it be like if you knew you were going to die next Tuesday? You know, um, and then I just thought, oh, that's so terrible. And I and I remembered this talk I'd heard, you know, four, three, four years ago mm-hmm. at my university. And I shut the paper and I went and took a shower. And when I was taking a shower, I remember just thinking, I'm taking a shower. And now and then I'm going to get out and, you know, get ready and go do something. But what would it be like if I, I just couldn't get it out of my head. Like what would taking a shower feel like if I knew I was going to die next Tuesday? Right. And I just couldn't get it out of my head. And so I tried to put it out of my head. And then afterwards, uh, later on, I think once I finished getting dressed or something, I just called up the paper, not to offer help, but just to know, I was so sure that other people would have called in the paper. Mm. Right. Because it was really a beautiful, a heartfelt letter. Um, So I called them up, and they're like, why are you calling? And I was like, oh, about that letter uh, from the prisoner. And they're like, uh, you know, I mean, obviously the newspaper is really busy, and they just (laughs) did not have time to talk to some silly girl that phoned up. Um, They said, why are you asking? And I said, well, I'm a lawyer. They said, great, well, give us your number, we'll call you back. And I was like, no, I just, like, so I gave them the number, and um, I actually got a call back, not from the paper, but from the prisoner's brother, And he happened to live in Lahore, even though the prisoner was in a jail in Rawalpindi. He turned up at my doorstep within like an hour. Um, And I just said, like, you don't understand, I'm like a year and a half out of law school, I have no idea Mm -hmm. what to do. And he said, it doesn't matter, like, you called, and I said, okay, what I can do is I know a lot of lawyers that would do anything to get me out of their office. So I can be a nuisance value, and I'm sure I can get you like a really big name lawyer to take this case for free. And he just looked at me and like, like, no, Is it the, no lawyer's gonna take this case. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, you know, I, I can think of at least three bosses who would do anything to get me out right. of their office. So I can be that nuisance. Um, um, and he was right. Nobody wanted to take the case, and they just said, You don't start your case, your your professional life with losing cases. Why are you wasting your time? Nothing can be done. And for me, what was really striking was, A, what professional life and what professional reputation? (laughs) I had none. So why would I care? Uh, And two, um, it didn't matter if uh, it was in a case that could be won. Um, Someone's life was on the line, and you have a set of skills as a lawyer to at least argue or fight or do something. Mm. And to not do that, to save someone's life just made no sense to me. Um,
1: So did you manage to take on the case? What was the the verdict of that?
0: So I did end up taking the case. I mean, there was nothing that could be done because he had lost all the way up to the Supreme Court and his mercy petition had been rejected. Uh, So I just went to Islamabad then uh, and typed up a new mercy petition uh, with this girl that found me because she had also read the letter. And she worked for an organization called Reprieve, which was actually the organization that of the guy that had come and spoken to my right. at my law school, because she called the paper. And the paper said about the same letter. And the paper said, Oh, he has a lawyer. This is her number.
1: Right.
0: And so she came and she contacted me. So this is what I mean about it, it was really interesting, interesting yeah. that that when every lawyer had said no to me, the, the, the lawyer that was my hero that was like You know, know, I'd listened to in law school. Um, Mm. Their person found me in Pakistan like five years later, just out of the the same letter. And I I couldn't really ask for a better teacher. Um, So we went to Islamabad and then tried to use every connection I could to get to the president. At that time, it was President Zadari. I couldn't get to the president, but we got to, I think, like the equivalent of the chief of staff of the president. And... uh, He uh, viewed us with a lot of... um, He was amused, to say the least. Um, But then he also said that uh, uh, just apply for a stay. And I think, like, um, nothing can be done. We can't take him off of death row. You should go and try to change public opinion about the death penalty. I was just like, are you serious? Like, how how the hell are we supposed to change, like, the public opinion about, like, what, 200 million people? Isn't that your job as the government to do, actually? Right. Um But what ended up happening was he did get a stay of execution. And actually, within a month and a half, there was the de facto moratorium in Pakistan started, which is that President Zadari, who had spent like a decade in prison, when he became president, uh, even though the PPP, the Pakistan People's Party, is opposed to the death penalty in principle, they tried to pass legislation to bring in a moratorium but they didn't win it in the National Assembly. But what President Zadari did was that he, he said he was not going to sign off on anybody's death warrant. So he stopped rejecting mercy ah, petitions. Okay. So he didn't take them off of death row. He didn't pardon them. He just stopped rejecting them. So there was a backlog, and that caused like a de facto moratorium, right? right. Um, so for seven years, uh, that went on. right okay um so my guy was saved and because of that because of him um i remember i went to see him the first time that was the first prison i ever went to see um and i went by myself and you know in pakistan you dress up as a lawyer you have a uniform like in england and in india Um, and i turned up at the prison um and i was pretty scared i okay so i'll be honest when he called me the first time at night uh, because they only got phones in, like, at that time at night, you know, when every all the guards went to sleep. So I got a call at, like, 11. And uh, he had a very deep voice. Um, and I have to be honest, I kind of shat myself a little bit. <laughs> it was a little scary. Because um, it seemed a bit, t- like, because he had such a deep voice. Um, and I did, for a split second, be like, oh, my God, I'm speaking to somebody from prison. Um, but he he's just the most... He's just the most extraordinary, incredible human being. And I think he knew how terrified and out of my depth I was. Um, um, And he was just very comforting and gave me a lot of confidence. And so then I went to see him and it was the first time I turned up to prison and the look on the prison guards' face to see this, like eight lawyers in Pakistan at that time did not go to prison. It was considered like bottom of the barrel stuff. Like you just don't. So prison staff were not very used to lawyers turning up to meet their death row clients. And most lawyers would come and sit in like the superintendent's office and get a power of attorney signed and then to have tea and go. Um, And in death row, uh, so like if you're coming to see a client that's uh, under trial or not on death row, Uh, they bring you to a visitation room. But death row people can't leave their cells, so you have to go into the prison, completely into the prison, which is great because you actually get to see the entire prison. Um, So I went and, uh, you know, I think they were just bemused, they just let me in. I mean, I I know I have a right to see my client and stuff, but they were just so kind of like, what? And so, you know, just, I I got to go in. Um, And I'll never forget it, it was not what I expected. You know, it was open, um, it was very clean, cleaner than the rest of the city outside, because they used thousands of prisoners to clean up the prison. Uh, I'm not saying the sanitation was good, I'm just saying it was, the public spaces in the prison were very clean. There was beautiful like shrubbery and like, you know, there was it was painted freshly, and all of this, and then the, it's very different than what you see in movies, right? And in, in American movies or British movies or Western movies and Hollywood movies, you see prisons. They're like you can't see the sky. Yeah. They're, you know, they're cell blocks stacked on top of each other, like like prehistoric dungeons or, or yeah. you know. Um, but uh, colonial prisons built in Pakistan are very different. Uh, they kind of are akin to like I compare it to the it's a terrible com- comparison, but the architecture is kind of like the zoo. So. I don't know what zoos in India are like, but zoos in Pakistan are, you know, where you have the you have enclosures. So especially where the lions are kept, right. they have a back enclosure and then they have um, another enclosure that they they let them into, so where people can watch them. Right. And it's got bars and it's got no ceiling, and um, so you can you know there's you can see the sky, and that's pretty much what death row is like. It's got in her courtyards, and there's back enclosures with six cells, and then they have an outer enclosure right. where they can walk for, like, an hour a day. Okay. Um, and it's not that big, but... So that's exactly what it was yeah. like. And I went to see him, um, but there are hundreds of prisoners in just <laughs> one enclosure, right? Um, and they can all see each other across the courtyard. True. Sure. So imagine, like forget the prison guards. And then, then these prisoners in Adiala on death row saw this, like, 30-year-old girl dressed as a lawyer coming and meeting, not somebody who was under trial, but who was basically, like, there was no, there was no case. Mm. And I sat down and I started talking to him. Um, and he was just incredible. Um, I was... But then it got a bit overwhelming because all the prisoners then figured out that I was a lawyer and... And they started yelling and asking for attention, not like sexually harassing me or anything like that, but they wanted help. And they couldn't believe that a lawyer was sitting there. Mm. Um, So they all started like asking for help and then the prison guards had to kind of get me out of there for a bit. So I was glad when they pulled me out to like calm them down because I was starting to feel a bit overwhelmed. Um, So they made me wait for two seconds outside the enclosure and I remember like I didn't want to start crying in the prison I was just so overwhelmed by just how many people there were and just how ridiculous <clears throat> it was just heartbreaking to see the scale of the problem and and the fact that mm-hmm. this person had lived this life for 15 years in the cell with like six other people I just, I, it just, it was beyond anything I could ever fathom. Mm. So I'm like looking at the sky and I looked to my left and it was a gallows right there. And I was like, oh my God. And I remember looking up at the sky and just say, thinking, why, what am I like supposed to do? And why am I being shown this? And I could just, I remember very clearly thinking, I can just walk away. And, and no one's going to kind of, no one can expect anybody to solve that problem. Right. And it's so big. Yeah. And I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, I, I, I've, I don't even know about the law in this country. Um, and I could just walk away and this would just be something that happened to me once mm. and that's it. But you didn't? Uh, no, I just realized that I could never live with myself yeah. if I walked away. I just, it was just one of those moments. And I, and I remember thinking, oh God, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Mm. And I don't know what that means.
1: But it's interesting. You could have walked away from the problem, but not from yourself. But and because of that, you started a project. Uh, fast forward that 10 years into today, and it was a moving story. And I, I'm, I'm glad it has a happy ending, so to speak. Um, what's what's life today uh, for JPP? And, you know, you are here in London. You're obviously meeting various um diplomats around the world or probably you're you're passing a message across to make sure the judicial system in pakistan is changed um i was reading on on an article um, on on internet that there are 53 countries in the world have death penalty um, including america's and china's of the world Um, and 80 percent of these countries um, the death penalty is very active in meaning four countries.
0: Yeah.
1: And Iraq, Iran, Saudi and Pakistan. China and China. China is the have oh, China secrecy doesn't. law, so yeah. you don't really know what, what know the what numbers it. are. So yeah. barring China, which probably are at the top of the of the list. But if you if you if you brand Pakistan among these other countries, which is, you know, very fundamentalist Islamist or whatever, you mm-hmm. know, tag you want to put it, how do you think with with I'm gonna get political a little bit with Imran Khan, you know, the ray of hope, so to speak, for Pakistan. Yeah. Do you think government has a big role to play in? Or yeah. is it, is it, uh, what, I mean, because obviously you've been fighting it for uh, almost 10 years now. Yeah. Give us a bit of a, you know, what needs to be changed? I mean. In so, case. I mean,
0: first of all, the death penalty, no matter what country you're in, that is a retentionist country. It's, it's, it's always been throughout history and it continues to be today. Um, it's just a political tool. Right, um, because the data, and there's enough data now worldwide, categorically shows that it serves absolutely no purpose right. of what it sets out to achieve. Right, so it has zero deterrent effect, um, and it does not. Um, uh, you know, it's it's there's there's a very high rate of wrongful convictions, um, so it doesn't kind of serve any penal purpose. So let's just get that out of the way. This is not. This is like, I mean, believing in the death penalty as having any kind of a Mm. uh, penal purpose, uh, fulfilling any kind of a penal purpose is like believing, not believing in climate change.
1: You know, I mean... But is there anything in Quran, for instance, why most of the... Muslim countries have this, and it's very hard for them to get away from this. Yeah. Is there anything, as per the imams of the world, that they preach? Oh, death has, there is Not at all. Not, I mean, not. actually, That's the death the penalty... That's point I want to clear, yes. Yeah, yeah
0: so. no. So it doesn't have to do with being a Muslim country or not, because throughout history, you've seen many states um, use the death penalty. Um, so it's really not tied to Islam at all. I mean, and you have... What? You know states that are that have been retentionist for many years, like Singapore and uh, the United States, and and Japan, it's cinema Japan. Yeah. and you know. So it's really not about uh, religion. But let's look at Islam's relationship with the death penalty, because what is a fact is that the four of the five highest executioners in the world are Muslim countries. Mm. Um, so, but that's all very. Tied into the politics of those countries that has nothing to do with Islam. Right. Because you have Islamic countries that have a moratorium and that are abolitionist as well. So um, clearly it doesn't have to do, also like, I mean, Islam, just like any other religion, is very specific to its uh, context and its right. region, right? right? So the interpretation yes. of Islam is very connected to that. Um, in fact, uh, in, in Pakistan, we do talk about the death penalty in terms of Islam a lot. Because Islam prescribes the death penalty only for two punishments, for two crimes. Um, And even in those crimes, it A, prefers mercy. B, it sets sets an evidentiary burden of proof in order to give the ultimate punishment to be so high that it's virtually impossible to give the death penalty. So it's called Tazki al-Shahud. So let's say you know, somebody's being tried for murder. Um, You can be convicted on the basis of just a single eyewitness's testimony, but that eyewitness's character Mm. from his entire life is called into play. And if they've ever told a lie or missed a prayer or hurt somebody or done anything dishonest, it cannot be believed. And it certainly cannot be the basis of giving uh, a death sentence. Um, So, Islam makes it virtually impossible uh, to prescribe the death penalty. Um, And even then, Islam allows for uh, a person to be forgiven, even up until the very last second, and to be exonerated. So, it's really, you know, talking about the death penalty in Islam, I think is a conversation that needs to happen more and people need to be educated about yes. Islam's position on the death penalty. The question. So Pakistan, yes. and yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. For example, Pakistan is 33 crimes that merit the death penalty. It's possibly the largest number of crimes on anyone's penal book. And none of those match Islam, right? Well. That's that. Those are not the punishments that the Quran prescribes uh, or Islam, uh, you know. because and, and, and again, um, mm. so I mean, that needs to Islam's standards on crime and punishment are actually much more in line with the universal declaration of human rights um, and the minimum standards for imposition of the death penalty that the united nations has put out so it's not in consonance at all coming back to pakistan and its relationship with the death penalty i think it shifts um but i think it's shifting in a in a direction that gives us hope so when the moratorium was lifted it was lifted as primarily a political tool The country was hurting. We had had the worst security failure in our history, which was 150 children got massacred uh, in a terrorist attack. Um, You know, it was the equivalent of Pakistan September 11th, and emotions were high and someone needed to be blamed. And, Mm. you know, who do you take? The segment of society that nobody cares about, these Mm. people on death row, who've done bad things. Do we know who these people are and what they've done? No, it doesn't matter. They're expendable, they're politically Mm -hmm. expedient. And that's exactly what was the first decision that was taken within 24 hours of the APS massacre. Um, But then, uh, so Pakistan executed over 300 people the first year alone. and, you know, none of the arguments that were put forth by the state at that time that we, we needed to combat terrorism held because you weren't executing terrorists, you weren't even trying terrorists. Mm. So even people that we were sentencing to death from the ter- anti-terrorism courts, 88% of them have nothing to do with terrorism. So, I mean, all of these were just absolute fallacies, And but they were deconstructed. We, we, we managed to do that in the public sphere and in the, in the eyes of the policymakers and... You know, the next year there were 88 executions and the year after that, 66, and last year were only 14. So, and on top of that, the government has committed to reducing the number of crimes that merit the death penalty and reforming the procedure whereby the death penalty right. is given.
1: So, how many cases now JBP have? Uh, and uh, do you always take a pro bono basis, or yeah? Uh, how do you fund your organizations? So, so
0: we don't. So we are not legal aid. So we do not take every single case. We right. do impact litigation, strategic litigation, which means we take test cases that we think have the ability to um, push the law forward, uh, to show a systemic failure, to demonstrate a, a systemic failure, and help develop the law in a more positive direction. Right. So that's called impact litigation. Um, we So with that, we have around 15 to 20 on average, but you know, five of those are before the Supreme Court and they're trying a, a critical question of law. A lot of time, our impact litigation becomes the the inflection point that begins a larger debate about that problem in society and actually leads to government mm. revisiting the issue on the policy side. So we might not... Necessarily win in court, right. but it you know we're able to generate that conversation, um, and then generate a debate on the policy and bring about policy change. Sure. So that's kind of what we do in terms of funding. Uh, we rely on the goodness of hearts of others. So individual funding, institutional funding, um, uh, government like from other governments, grants. Proposal, you know, the, we One. we take that. One.
1: And what's your purpose of visit to Europe?
0: So, I mean, Europe is, um, you know, it's it's, it's always been a place where uh, they have a principled opposition to the death penalty. The European Union has been very active in supporting uh, countries that do use the death penalty to follow minimum uh, guidelines and safeguards in in, in using that punishment. Um, So we find European countries... uh, to have a rich kind of moral high ground in terms of talking about this punishment, mm-hmm. and the example I always use is that, you know, if then if if post World War II, uh, the Nuremberg trials did not use sentence people to death, um, then really we can't talk about, you know, our citizens being more deserving mm-hmm. than, you know, for example, the Nazis that killed millions yeah. of people. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, I find them. I, I find Europe to be a, a good place to have that discussion to, to support our work. But then England is particularly close to us because we have a very large South Asian population over here. It's a commonwealth country. The law is very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's that overlap uh, here as well.
1: And what else? Um, uh, before we started recording, you mentioned something else that you wanted to cover on... Uh skipping my mind at the moment. Oh, it's
0: okay. Oh yeah, we were talking about our work on overseas Pakistani prisoners. That's the one. Yes. So recently we've been, well not recently, 4 years ago, we started representing Pakistanis on death row abroad because there's about 11,000 Pakistani prisoners overseas and and um, they've really kind of been lost in the system. Mm. And it started through a piece of litigation that we did in the Lahore High Court and it's now kind of evolved um, beyond just... The majority of Pakistani prisoners are in GCC countries because that's where most of our migrant workers' population goes. Saudi
1: Arabia, the first uh, Pakistani female got executed recently. Yes,
0: exactly, Uh, Mm. after a very long time. Um, Mm. So, um, you know, we've been working on that issue and actually we found this current government uh, to be a godsend in terms of overseas Pakistanis and standing up for their rights. Um, The special advisor to the prime minister... uh, um, Zulfiqar Bukhari has been doing some phenomenal work uh, on in terms of not only representing Pakistanis overseas that are doing well, um, but Pakistanis in distress uh, and in mm. detention. Um, and uh, they've been making some great strides. They, you know, The Prime Minister raised it with uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia when he came for a state visit. He mm. had this incredible, emphatic appeal on behalf of Pakistanis imprisoned in Saudi Arabia and the Prime Minister... And the crown prince pardoned one-third of, you know, out of 3,400 Pakistanis in prison in Saudi Arabia, he pardoned 2,100 just like that. Um, they're they're pursuing a prisoner's transfer agreement with the kingdom, which is going to be very useful systemically in terms of future
1: right.
0: Pakistanis who, uh, who find themselves in prison. They're doing that with Iran. Uh, they're doing that with the UAE. Um, uh, so we find this government on the issue of overseas pakistanis um, really mm. taking the right steps so credit work credit is due i can't comment on what they're doing in terms of finance or everything else um but in this aspect uh as compared to previous administrations mm. um they're really um doing a lot and we're and we're very grateful for that
1: brilliant i think it was amazing catching up with you sarah it's uh I know you've been busy. You've been hoping meeting after meeting and uh, taking some time out for this podcast and uh, for such a noble cause. Uh, more power to you and uh, to your organization. Um, thank you once again.
0: Thank, thank you care. so much. Let's stop this. Ooh. Hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. You can catch all upcoming episodes on the website globalize-asian.co.uk or via your iOS or Android devices. Also, if you wish to join us as a speaker and share your
1: story, please do drop us a message via the contact form on the website.